Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning and uh, worship with us. And it's uh, a great day for the Gertzen family. We have a sort of a mini revival at our house. We have already have Bob and Kathy serving him, serving here him here. It's always fun to uh, hear your children go on beyond you. And you know the joy of our heart is that our children become better Christians than we are. That's our goal. And it's been fortunate enough for us as a family to see that happen for Faith and me. It's a joy. And you pray for those that need little help along the way as well in a family. And it's been fun to watch Rick grow. Uh, I could introduce him as uh, Dr. Rick but uh, he's just Rick to me. He's a pastor at, uh, at uh, I want to say Shawnee, but it's Shades Mountain Community Church in Birmingham, Alabama, actually Hoover. And uh, Rick, it's good to have you. Come and minister. Well, thank you. It's good to be here after that wonderful fanfare. And uh, good to be a part of this. I'm very grateful. For you guys, I, I just want to take a moment and say thank you guys. I know many of you guys were praying for our family as uh, Chris was battling ALS. And, uh, you know, before all that, I probably made a little bit of fun of people say, I feel your prayers. I'm like, you don't feel prayers, but I got to tell you, you feel prayers. And uh, it's a real thing. And we appreciate this church and you guys keeping us in mind and, and praying for us. And we, we felt it very much. So thank you very much. Well, if you wouldn't mind taking your Bibles and joining me in Daniel chapter 4, we spent the first hour working through verse 27, and we want to pick up there in verse 28, in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28, we have the, the dream has been dreamt, the dream has been interpreted, and Nebuchadnezzar has been warned and so I want to pick up in verse 28, if you would, follow along as I read. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. The king was reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be the beast of the field, and he will pass over you until you recognize the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. But at the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion and his everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he does according to his will and the hosts of heaven. 
and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the time, my reason returned to me. My majesty and my splendor were restored to me. The glory of my kingdom and the counselors and the nobles began speaking out. And I reestablished my sovereignty, seeking me out. And I was reestablished in the sovereignty. The surpassing greatness was added to me. And now I am the Knesset. Praise and exalt and honor the King of Heaven. For all of his works are true, his ways are just, and he is humble, able to humble those who walk in pride. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We all need it, not just the great King Nebuchadnezzar. Each one of us, we tend to think we are something. We need to be reminded that you are everything. May that be our reminder and a great path to sanity this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an inevitable problem with personal achievement and self-satisfaction. It is really the fiber of our country. You great grow up, you work hard, you have personal achievement, and at some point in life you're satisfied with that. As you work and achieve, you supply for your family, you do all the right things, out of that comes a sense of satisfaction. Many of us are satisfied or derive our satisfaction from what we can do and what we can achieve. We are taught to live and be great at our achievements, to to work hard, strive for excellence. And that will end in the comfort and peace based on our labors and our efforts. In fact, the Bible tells us to work hard. The Bible tells us to build. If we are wise and smart, we can take our resources and make our resources better and grow. We can search out and invest in our good stewards. When one looks around, it's time to look around and grow satisfied with problems. However, we find that that's when sin tends to creep in as well. Go back to Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is what happens to King David. And then it happened in the spring. The time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab, his servant, with him and all of Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon, besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. And now when evening came, David rose out of his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And so David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David got to a point in his life where he didn't have to do all the battles and he didn't have to do everything, so he sent everybody else out. And he sat back and took a break and remained with some idle time. His mind wasn't full of what the battles needed to be, so he had an idle mind and the problems began to come just strolling around on his elevated porch. He sees and he lusts and he takes. The sin of David's situation is different than the sin of Daniel chapter 4. But we see a, a pattern of a man allowing the opportunity for sin. Now in Nebuchadnezzar's case, he had been warned. He had been visibly shaken by a 
dream. He had listened to the interpretation of that dream. And he had been warned by Daniel, pleaded with by Daniel. And even though the dream that was interpreted by Daniel was moving for Daniel, as we saw the first hour, he was appalled at the interpretation. And he wished it was against the enemies of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel warns him to change in verse 27. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sin by doing righteousness of the iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, be prolonged of your prosperity. Do righteousness. Turn away from iniquity. Show mercy. We find here then, after that warning, that God has two steps of bringing true sanity out of our insanity. Nebuchadnezzar's sin led to demonstrable insanity. And I'm telling you that your sin leads to maybe not so demonstrable insanity. It is insane for you and I to have any pride in our life whatsoever. It's insanity. It's not just oops or there I went again. It's insanity. First of all, we find the step one, man is insane. That's right. Man is insane. Without God and the revelation of God in your heart, you and I are insane. Pride skews everything. The infirmity set upon Nebuchadnezzar is meant to show us that a prideful man is an insanity in and of itself. That's the point. All this happened. Verse 28. All this happened. Nebuchadnezzar introduced this part of his account of the general indication of the dream's fulfillment. Everything in that dream, everything Daniel interpreted, it all happened. Every bit of it. Down to the little bit. Now, verse 28 through 38, it all goes into the third person. It goes back, it wasn't, now it goes back to I in verse 39, right? All this happened, and now we find it, we, we move back to the I in verse 39. Twelve months, twelve months later, wow, Daniel warned him. And God has been very patient and allowed Nebuchadnezzar the opportunity to come to his senses, to flee his insanity, do what is righteous and so mercy of the poor. He had been very patient with Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar, with that patience, refused to acknowledge the warning of the dream. And the longer, in my mind, the longer that 12 months went, the less inclined he was to do so. Well, haven't acted like a beast yet. I guess that was just a bad dream. And, Daniel was wrong. No, didn't happen. Notice the exact number. Right? Twelve months. It shows, really, that there was an intentional time given to Nebuchadnezzar. Just like there's an intentional judgment, seven years in that dream, there will be seven years of judgment upon you. Now we have a very intentional, there is twelve months. The time given for Nebuchadnezzar to listen to the warning. He did not acknowledge or he, did he heed it? Did, did Nebuchadnezzar just blow off the warning? Ah, oh, silly, I'm not going to become a beast. Daniel, nah. Perhaps there was a good intention. You know, I'm, 
I'm shaking. I need to, I need to be more righteous for, you know, kind of like your workout program after the first of the year or your diet, right? That first, you know, I don't know, what, one, two meals? You're careful. <laughs> right? Maybe, maybe Nebuchadnezzar, you know, gave a little money to the poor and said, oh, I'll do a little bit here. Yeah, okay, fine. Or, or, or maybe, maybe he was righteous for a week or two or just didn't take, slipped back in the old patterns. Verse 29, time's up. Time, right? Twelve months later, he's walking on top there. He's walking on his rooftop. Guys, don't walk on your roof. It's not good. Maybe we should say deck. Don't sit on your deck and ponder how great you are. Man, if the guys at work just know how hard I work and how much better I am than they are. If they, they could see, if the guys at work would just recognize, they take my advice, man, this company would be so much better. If the guy across the street would farm as well as I do, man, right? None of us have ever done that on our deck. <laughs> David did. He sinned. Nebuchadnezzar did. He sinned. Stay off your deck, guys. From his roof, he could see much of his city. Nebuchadnezzar built five major structures. He could stand on his roof and look and say, I built that tower, and I built that ziggurat, and I built that garden. And they are big things, right? If I see something I built, I'm like, I hope nobody sees that. Nothing square. Not Nebuchadnezzar. He, he, verse 30, he reflects. The king reflected. Is this not Babylon the Great? He's not wrong, guys. He's not wrong. It was Babylon the Great. Which I myself, now he's wrong. See the difference? Which I myself built with the royal residence and the power of my mind and the glory of my majesty. I've got the best tapestry. I've got the best statues. I've got the best marble. Kind of sounds like somebody running for president. Look what Babylon had become. Babylon was one of the finest, largest cities in all the world ever. We don't have the ruins like they have the pyramids of the pharaoh's times, but it was something else. It had a double-walled system. The outer wall was 17 miles long, and it was wide enough for a chariot to pass on top. It had eight city gates. The most popular was the Ishtar Gate. It approached it from the north. It was 35 feet high. The citadels of the Isagala is where the grand temple of Marduk was. It was an imposing ziggurat, the ziggurat Etamananki. The main road was enameled brick. It had 120 lions, the symbol of Ishtar. It had 575 bulls and dragons, the symbol of Marduk. So as you went down Main Street from the gate of Ishtar, they had all these 575 bulls ending in 120 lions coming up to his house. That's some landscape art right there, guys. Right? And then, of course, there's the hanging gardens. There's the hanging gardens, elevated gardens with a hoist system and watering from the river Euphrates. 
that believed that they were made for his wife who came from the mountains and she missed the mountains and so he built her a mountain with gardens. All this leads to the statement, I have built this. I have built this. I'm sure he commissioned it. I'm sure he sat down with the architects. I'm sure he looked at the drawings. I, I'm sure he did all he could to procure all the things. So, kind of, sort of, maybe you would think that, right? True enough, though, Nebuchadnezzar was a very major building king. We are very familiar with building kings. Herod, King Herod was a builder, and he built the temple, and he built cities, and he built all kinds of structures. Some of us have been to Israel. We, maybe you made the, 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 the walk or the tram ride to Masada and all those things, and you've seen these structures. Incredible. He was a builder king. His palace was considered the bond of the land. It was the brilliance of all the abode of Babylon. But he follows the, the look. He says, look in there. He says, I myself have built that. But he follows that. I built it by what? The power of my might and the glory of my majesty. He triples down on this. Look what I have built. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe you did build it, but by the grace of God I built it. Or, or, or you know, no, by the power of my might I built it. And, and by the glory of my majesty. All of this is done to reflect how powerful I am and how majestic I am. So when people walk into the great city of Babylon, they see, man, Nebuchadnezzar's amazing. That's where it leads. And clearly, this is the boast of pride. And honestly, the sense of what a man has accomplished in life, he's accomplished much. He's conquered and he's built. He had a high position. He's king. He's, he's made the most out of what's been given to him. And we admire one who takes their business and wisely increases it. Do we not? That's what you want to do. After years under somebody's management, it increases. You've been able to help people support their families. You've increased profits. Shareholders have grown. We, we admire that. We celebrate someone who has this and increases it to that. It's the parable of the talents and the minas. God gave you this many. He comes back, and now you, we appreciate that. But we don't recognize boasts without the grace of God in the middle of that. Right? I'm not, this is not a sermon about don't increase. This is a sermon about give the glory to God. Does that make sense? It's not an idle boast he makes. But look, it says, while the word, verse 31, look at it. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came. He's interrupted. He's interrupted. Look what I built. The power of my might. The glory of my majesty. I kind of wondered what was next. We'll never know because God interrupted him right there. While it was right there, I've had enough. We're not, you can have a sentence, you're not going to have a paragraph here. This is it. Frequently in Scripture, God is said to bring judgment at the very moment blasphemous words are issued from the mouth of the blasphemer. Israelites in Psalm 78, verse 31, before they satisfied their desire, 
While the food was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord rose against them and killed some of them, the stoutest ones, and subdued the choicest men of Israel. Here they are. They had all this desire, and they desire, and their food was still in their mouth, and there in their pride was going, and God judged them while they were still chewing it. They weren't allowed to swallow. You can have a little taste, but you're not going to have a swallow. How about Ananias and Sapphira? Right? In Acts 5. The lie was still coming out. Boom. They dropped dead. How about Herod Agrippa in Acts 12? Remember, he makes that great boast. Oh, the words of God. And we're like, oh, words of God. Ooh, I got a cramp in my stomach. Oh, it's worms. I'm dead in three days. <laughs> right? While it was still going on, the effects of the judgment hit them. It's like when you're angry and you're mad and you kick something, the effects of the judgment immediately hit your big toe. <laughs> it's amazing that God would long suffer enough to let the word even be permitted at all. He knew it was in the heart of the man. He knew it was in his mind, but he wanted the expression so that you and I would understand and that, was when that which was in his heart and his mind would be displayed so we would understand why the judgment was there. It is the pride of not recognizing the sovereignty of God. It's the pride of not understanding his kindness. It's the pride of thinking you have the ability to do anything without his grace. And it is all a blasphemous pride. Ouch. The voice fell from heaven. Supernatural. Every now and then people say, you know, God told me, I really, was there lightning and thunder? Was it a great voice? No, yeah, well, I don't think it was his, but it's no human instrument. It's the voice of heaven. It came out of heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar. He addresses the king by name. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you, it is declared. He names him and he directs it, right? What happens? Well, we can just follow. The kingdom is sovereign. T is removed. He is driven away from man. He eats grass as a beast. Seven years is the duration of his judgment. Restoration is possible if you recognize the Most High God is sovereign and it takes effect immediately. Every point of the dream that was interpreted by Daniel is now reiterated by the voice of heaven. The very same thing he heard 365, well, actually 360 in their calendar, days earlier, right? Takes effect. Immediately, as the voice ended, his sanity was gone. One might argue... That to be absent from the throne would leave others to attempt to replace him and no kingdom could weather the storm of a vacant king. May very well be true. We also know that actually for years Tiberius went kind of mad and moved to an island and was absent from Rome for years and years and never really lost his rule. So it's, it's, it's possible. We also must remember that Nebuchadnezzar had, many, Nebuchadnezzar had many educated men, Daniel being one of them, had begun a place in the 
best and the brightest positions were there, had been there, and they were key and had been key for many years. Those men would have no problem keeping the subordinates and the bureaucrats in line, and they may have done so. What did they tell the people? I have no, no clue. Probably some form of secrecy was used to hide the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was in fact not in the palace, but rather he was in the barn. Someplace out in the back 40. Maybe he was sick, or maybe he was on vacation, or I don't know what they came up with, but we know that God sovereignly kept the kingdom together for him. Step one, we need to understand very simply that man is insane. It's kind of hard for us to swallow. We don't want to believe that about everybody, but it's a truth. Step two is simply this, that sanity is found in the acknowledgement of the Most High. Sanity is found in the acknowledgement of the Most High. Verse 34 through 37, look at it. But at the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is the everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does not, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Seven years. A long period of time. That seven years has come to an end. Think about seven years. What what? What was life like seven years ago? That would have been 16, 2016, right? Is that a good math? 2016, seven years. Wow, you think back. Life was completely different back then, right? Think about your kids. Your kid was five, now your kid's 12 or whatever. That's a great way to kind of judge years. You kind of think, I've had 17 jobs in the last seven years. Maybe you talk to somebody, but right? The reality is things change in seven years. A lot goes on. I would think that after I heard the announcement, the acknowledgement of the Most High, I, I might have done that earlier. But like we said earlier, it shows in, who's in control of this event. It was a full seven years. Why? Because the dream had stated, the prophecy had stated, it will be seven years. Nebuchadnezzar did not have the opportunity to repent before the seven years was up. It was God's judgment and it was a determined time. Determined by God. He would not lift up his eyes, nor would he come to his understanding because this is a judgment. It's not just a, a lesson hoping he comes to his senses. It is a judgment of God upon him. And he will see its full duration. Even though people will cry out during the tribulation, it will, it will be a full seven years. And it actually, at the end of it, it seems like the sequence is a little out of order. Look at it. The end of that period, I Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned me. Why would he raise his eyes to heaven if he had no reason? He's insane. Why would he raise his eyes? Should the reason come before he's raised his eyes? Shouldn't he understand, and then, as he came to understanding, lift his eyes to heaven based upon his understanding? 
The lifting of the eyes signifies the humble admission of his dependence. Humility was necessary before he could understand. The humility was necessary before he was granted restoration. And understanding doesn't come until you're humble. You don't sit down and reason out, well, if I humble myself, I'll understand. No, you're humble, and then you come to an understanding. You lift your eyes. I would think that after I heard, the, again, this announcement, I would have done this earlier. But again, it is a judgment of God. The insanity was said precisely because the king was proud. So before the insanity could be removed, there had to be an indication of the pride being taken away. And that indication was the lifting of the eyes. A dependence upon the most high God, not self. I will never have understanding until I look to the Lord. And then I look to the Lord and then the understanding begins to come. I must humble myself first. What happens in humility? Well, first I have a sense of self. What am I? Nebuchadnezzar's situation? Well, I'm an insane beast. But most of all, there has to be a sense of God. But I will never have a sense of God and first I understand that I am nothing. I am, I am nothing but dust, the psalmist says. I, I, God is everything. And upon lifting his eyes, he comes to his understanding and the restoration is apparently full with no lingering effects and it is immediate. This is the way the Lord heals. The mind and infirmities. It's full and it's immediate. Can you imagine? He lifts his eyes to heaven. He recognizes and he states this amazing thing. But my, I, I got to ask. At what point does he go, dude, I'm hairy. Okay, look, look at my fingernails. How coarse and long. Wow. I wonder what he thought when he looked in the proverbial mirror. He didn't have time to think about his condition. He, he thought about his soul. That's what he was affected by. Look what he says. He uses three verbs in verse 34. I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him who lives forever. He blessed, he praised, he honored. Man, what a big turnaround. Look what I built, my power, my majesty. Okay, that's insanity. Oh, what is non-insanity? What is sanity? It is, I bless, I praise, and I honor. There it is. There it is. The one who is insane is my, and my, and my. The one who has sanity blesses and praises and honor. He wishes to stress his overall thought. In recognition of God's greatness, a feeling of his own thankfulness, an admission of his personal dependency, and a spirit of humble admiration. He is truly repentant. He is submissive to the Most High God. Him who lives forever. That's the way he ends it. He says, I came, my reason returned, I blessed the Most High, I praised, I honored Him, lives forever. 
I don't live forever. In fact, I only live at the whim of the sovereign God. Maybe I'll be a great king. Maybe I'll be a beast in the field. That's up for him to decide. He chooses that for me. I recognize that. And I understand he lives forever. And out of that, I also recognize his dominion and his kingdom. Him who lives forever. And we have here a causal conjunction. Because. It's simply a because, right? And then we found that because followed by a possessive relative pronoun. Now, it's kind of geeky, but it's important. His dominion, his kingdom. For, because his dominion, his, again, right? It's not mine, not my power, not my might. I've recognized it because of this causal possessive pronoun. Because he, because he, really, due to addressing God's dominion, being eternal, shows the reason for Nebuchadnezzar's glorification of God. At the end of verse 3, this enduring kingdom, generation to generation. Verse 35, look at it. It's the greatness of God. All the inhabitants of earth account as nothing. He does according to his will and hopes. Nebuchadnezzar knows that better than anybody. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Everything is nothing before God. No matter whatever it is, no matter how majestic, no matter how powerful, it's not just kings or armies, it's all nothing. Man will never learn this. Even after the great battle of Armageddon where all of man come to fight against God and are wiped out and left every one of them dead, and every sinner is removed from the earth, yet again, man will give birth to more sinners who again, after a thousand years of perfect rule, will raise their armies against God under the lead of Satan. Man never learned. Why? Man is insane. We are afflicted with the insanity of depravity. And we come up with insane things. God does as he wills. He clearly has dominion. Look what God did to the strongest king of men. He was the gold head in the vision. He kept three boys from a fiery furnace in the face of that king. And the king still didn't get it. Worship my great idol. No thanks. You're going to burn. We understand. God has dominion. And we'll burn only if God wants us to burn. We won't burn if Nebuchadnezzar wants us to burn. They go. Shazam. They didn't burn. And yet years later we're here and Nebuchadnezzar is still insane. No one can stop the hand of God. I don't care how hot you make the furnace or how hot anything is. He did not heed the warning even though Daniel pleaded with him and it all came to pass. Here's the point. If God does something, it is right. That doesn't mean it doesn't bring sorrow. It brings sorrow. Many times it is very sorrowful. But it's right. If only because he is the one who did it. 
Admitting the punishment was just and the fact that he had no place for questioning it. That's what he does. Verse 36. And at that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me. Notice them. Notice the difference. Before, by the power of my might and the majesty of my glory. And my majesty and splendor restored to me. Look at this. For the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. I was reestablished. My sovereignty and surpassing grace added to me. Now he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. All return, all the majesty, splendor, and glory. The counselors, the nobles are looking to him for leadership again. That, right? The, you had to ask, okay, you were kind of insane for seven years. We're going to throw out a test question here to see how exactly. It's all back. But verse 37, he's humbly grateful for it. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. Before it was blessed and praised and honor. Now it's praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just and is able to humble those who walk in pride. All these people are coming back. All his mental faculties are back to him. He's humble. It's all back to him without a political fight. The key is I was reestablished. He recognized that he was brought to restoration. I was reestablished. Somebody brought, somebody did that work for me. Verse 37 is that change of attitude. The statement here in verse 37 that we just read has led many to question. Is this a true conversion for Nebuchadnezzar? Did Nebuchadnezzar become converted? Right? To repent, verse 34, shows a continuing action, continuing continuation of action. It says in verse 34 that that takes place. It's an active participle. Kind of lets us know that that's taking place. Well, my answer to you is only God knows. Calvin and Leupold say no. Young and Walter say yes. I know your answer. What does Rick say? I know that's for what do you know. Of course he was. I think he was. I think he wrote this chapter. He starts out in verses 1 through 3 as we saw earlier in the day. And he writes this amazing thing. He bookends it with 37. He doesn't really rule much longer than this. And after the end of his continuation of praise, indicated in verse 36, 37, the acknowledgement of a just act by God leads me to believe that he is absolutely was converted. All this coupled with a radical change. He's looking heavenward, not inward. He's having his reason returned because he was insane before. The insanity of his pride is gone. And now he can reason. What does this all mean to us? Well, let me come back to it. First of all, we need to be warned. You and me and our fits of pride are fits of insanity. Many of us here have lifted our eyes and had our reason come to us, not necessarily return. Reason in a sense that God opened our minds to understand that you and I are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And many of us have had that part of our sanity given to us by a gracious hand of God, for which we're forever grateful. And you and I do praise, honor, glorify God as best we can. However, you and I are not completely freed from the chains of flesh 
And you and I are very susceptible to fits of insanity. Hopefully that fit, two, three, four, five minutes. You catch yourself, sometimes it's longer and perhaps it's way too long. The insanity of pride can be given to us in Job chapter 40, verse 11 and 12. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look to everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. And tread down the wicked where they stand. That's not, not a good thing to be proud of. They ain't back off. They just listen to me. Ooh, wait a minute. A couple weeks ago, people were in a church, kind of this, that, and the other thing. And I was kind of fed up. Because, you know, I am rich. <laughs> I got to thinking to myself, they need to understand that I've spent 10 years studying the Bible in formal education at Bible college through my doctorate. And they need to understand that I've got 40 years of doing this. They just need to shut up and listen to me. Dude. <laughs> While the words were still in his mouth. Come on, man. Make him low. Humble him. Tread the wicked where they say, man, by God's grace, you and I are allowed to be prideful way more than we should be. Actually had those thoughts and walked away and should have been busted to the floor. It's easy to let that stuff slip in, isn't it? Just so easy. Let me help you understand your pride a little bit. Let me give you just a couple characteristics of pride. A prideful person lifts their heart. A prideful person lifts their heart. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 5. By your great wisdom, by your pride... You have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Yeah, you worked hard and yeah, you were a good steward and yeah, you paid off and yeah. And yeah, if you say yeah by anything other than the grace of God that allowed that to happen, you are a prideful man and a prideful woman. Get your family together at Thanksgiving. Look at the great kids we have. We're not like other families. You are so insane. By God's grace, by his majesty, he has allowed this in my family. Acts 8, verse 9. Now there is a man named Simon who was formerly practicing magic in the city, astonishing the people, claiming to be someone great. Now we would never be Simon, and we'd never walk to the city saying, "Look at me, I'm so great." That's just that's audacious. My pride is much more subdued. 
I've lifted my heart within my heart, and other people aren't. But every now and then, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can't help it. You know what? We should just call each other. We put up with each other's pride, mainly because we don't want to be calling ours. Dude, that was prideful. Oh. Well, yeah, but yesterday you said something prideful. Yeah, yeah, yes, I did. Thanks. Call me on it, right? We should do that. So the first understanding is we are prideful when we lift our heart. The second one is when we have a contempt for others. Why do you think Daniel said when he warned him, give glory to God and start giving to the poor, serve the poor? Because the greatest example of a non-prideful person is the fact that they care for others. Why? Because you can't be prideful and care for others. And so an example of your own prideful heart is when you have contempt for other people. Now this is a natural human condition. Whether it's color of their skin, or where they're from, or what they think, or where they work, or what football team they root for. Those crazy Oklahoma fans. Wish they'd drive faster. Get out of my way. Silly things, but real things too. Luke 18.9 says, and he told his parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. He told them a parable. Why? Because they trusted in themselves, pride, and they viewed others with contempt. They had no real compassion on other people. That neighbor doesn't cut their grass the right way. <laughs> they look to themselves. Right? They look to themselves. Daniel 4, 30. The king reflected and said, Is not Babylon great, which I myself built, my royal power and my majesty? I have contempt for other people. I look to myself, and I'm great. Here's, here's the kicker. Pride can exist with holiness about as much as a worm with fruit. Your pride can exist with holiness about as much as a worm can exist with fruit. You don't want fruit with a worm in it. Well, pride in your heart is that worm. We've all been there. Good looking piece of fruit. We cut it open. Ugh. What if we cut your heart open today? Right? Well, the flip side of that is humility acknowledges God. The humility of acknowledging God. So we've talked a little bit about pride. Let me just give you a couple things about what humility is. The flip side is a humble man bemoans his sin. A humble man bemoans his sin. His prayer is, oh, how little I have done. We don't sit on our decks and think, look how great it is, look what I've done. A humble man looks back and says, ah, oh, just, man, I did so little. Numbers 14, 22. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my sign which I performed in Egypt and all the wilderness that have put me to the test these ten times have not listened to my voice. They saw it all. These men in the wilderness, they saw everything he did in the ten plagues. They were at Sinai. They saw it all. They ate manna every day. 
and yet they were the same men to put him to the test. They should have bemoaned their sin, however, they just continued to commit more sin. A humble man enjoys the condition that God sees best for him. A humble man enjoys the condition that God sees is best for him. A prideful man complains that he does not have more. A humble man wonders why does he have so much. What a difference, huh? Genesis 32.10, I am unworthy of the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two companies. Jacob came to that realization. He had to wrestle with God. He had a big fight at J-Book. But he got in there. I walked away with a staff running for my life and I come back and I have two companies of family. But it took that wrestling over the past few months and really over the last year or so. People have come up to me and they've said to me, you know, if my wife had ALS, I'd be bitter. I'd just be so angry with God. And my wife died. I'm like, I am too scared to be angry with God. I'm, t- I'm fearing. I, who, who am I to be angry with God? And I also recognize that this is exactly what God has for me. Not what I had planned. Not what I had planned. But I recognize that this is exactly what God had planned. And whereas there is sorrow and all that, this is exactly ultimately what I want. Would I I give anything for one more dinner with my wife? Yeah. But that's not what God would have for me. And I'm good with that. Ultimately, a humble man sees his heart. Over and over again throughout Scripture, we have men going to prideful men and telling the prideful man they're prideful. Why? Because a prideful man does not see his own heart. (laughs) It's the lie of pride. That's why you're insane. A humble man does not claim about, does not complain about his condition. He complains about his own heart. Oh, I wish I was more godly. Oh, I see my sin. The more knowledge he has, the more he sees his ignorance and dependence upon God. Second Corinthians, Paul is, he is encouraged and given a, a chance to have a vision of the third heaven. As a result of that, he is well content in the thorn that keeps him humble. Paul could have walked around, oh, you don't even know what happened. Like, you don't even know. I, I've seen it. You, you don't even know. Paul didn't say anything like that. You and I need to be men and women who feast on the word of God and not on grass. You and I need to be men and women who know our creator. We do not glory in our creations. 
You need to know your heart before the Lord. We not, need not be men and women who hang on the great condition which we built for ourselves. You want to be sane? Sanity begins with knowing God. Purity begins with loving God. Salvation begins with trusting God. The Old Testament says in 2 Chronicles 33, 12, and when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord God and humbled himself greatly before his God of his Father, and he prayed to him, and he's moved by the entreaty and heard his supplication. And he brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. What's it going to take for you to know? Seven years? And I think seven years is getting off easy. Reality, because of our insanity, we should have eternity in hell. Thank God that he graciously opened my eyes that I might see and have understanding of his salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. I, I pray that you, you need to see and understand that you are incapable without the movement of God, unwilling to come to him as your personal savior. If you don't know him, flee from your insanity. If you have become stagnant and self-righteous, even as one who claims the name of Christ, I again plead with you that you would be warned of your insanity, that you would recognize the righteousness of God, and that you would reach out in humility and serve others in need. Gracious God, we thank you. May the warning that was not heeded by Nebuchadnezzar, the life that Nebuchadnezzar lived as a beast in insanity, be the great lesson to us. May we be different. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.